Welcome, I'm Jean Parker, and you're listening to Discovering How, a podcast of the ethical business building the future organization. We're a global learning community using our workplaces to build a better future. On today's program, we're learning a lot about collaboration. Leila Tavernaro Hadarian explains collaboration in the South African context, and Vahid Mazrur talks about collaboration on Wikipedia. But first, Michael Carlberg is a professor in communication studies at Western Washington University. He says it's necessary to change the culture of contest for collaboration to flourish in society. The culture of contest is partly characterized by self-interested motivations. So you know, competition for scarce resources, the accumulation of capital, wealth, any other goods in self-interested ways. We've, in the modern world, largely come to organize almost every social institution as a contest of one kind or another. Partisan political contests for power and authority, educational contests for grades and recognition, even most forms of recreation and leisure are organized as contests today. In the, in the economy, we do a similar thing. It's contests for capital accumulation and market share and on a consumer side for you know acquisition of material goods and services. So that's the culture of contest broadly. The outcomes of this are, among other things, you know, increasing disparities of wealth and poverty. And we're reaching a point with over 7 billion of us on this planet today where we simply can't afford those outcomes anymore. And I mean, one can find competitive, conflictual, self-interested behaviors throughout human history, even though there was often a high degrees of internal cooperation and, and uh, harmony, often there was competition and conflict and violence and war across groups. So you know, these behaviors go back throughout human history. So people have a hard time imagining today that, that society could be organized in any other way or that human nature is capable of uh, acting on other impulses. It rests on a very limited view of human nature. There's no doubt that humans are capable of self-interested actions. Uh, the problem is we're also capable of cooperative, mutualistic, altruistic action. And if our model of human nature excludes that whole dimension, uh, not only do we ignore it in the way we set up social institutions, we also fail to systematically cultivate it. In and of itself, that need requires us to really rethink the way we organize governance in various levels, because when governance is organized as a contest for power, it actually tends to reinforce the same outcomes. The problem here again is that this is really based on a flawed understanding of human nature. There are uh, still deeper human motivations than self-interest, and and those really are altruism. You know, the the, the notion of uh, working for the common good, even of sacrificing for a higher cause. You know, how many people have ultimately sacrificed their life for like material self-interest? It's pretty hard to find many because that's almost a sort of oxymoron. But people all over the world and throughout history have sacrificed for the common good, for higher causes. Parents sacrifice for their children, Firefighters and police risk their lives every day in order to you know, protect the common good. And frankly, 
all sorts of people sacrifice uh, more lucrative jobs in order to do jobs that they find more meaningful in the caring industries, you know, in other domains. It's actually not difficult to find people who, who are motivated by altruism. The challenge is that we've structured the economy in such a way that it actually doesn't sort of tap and foster those motivations very effectively. And how does that need to change? What are the institutional structures that need to emerge to counteract that? Ultimately, I think we have to recognize we have a lot of learning to do. We have a lot of knowledge to generate about how to do these things because human history doesn't provide enough experience in this domain yet. But some examples, there are uh, new structures emerging in some parts of the world, such as benefit corporations, where one can actually identify other values in a corporate charter that uh, a corporation is dedicated to maximizing. So that's a structure at the level of a different kind of corporation. One can also imagine many other kinds of corporations, you know, operating with cooperative models, profit sharing models, many other models that we have some experience with in the world and that have proved viable, but that are not actively encouraged or widely sort of reproduced yet. What about think, social enterprise? Yeah, so absolutely. Social enterprise. And it, again, social enterprise, in some ways, it's like a concept related more to the motivational side of this than the structural side of this. So, you know, a social entrepreneur still needs to create a structure that supports their efforts and ultimately operate within broader market structures that do the same. So you say that mutualism is more powerful than competition, but how can we prove that? How do we know that for sure? I think there are a couple of things we can say. One is, even if we don't know it for sure, it's a hypothesis that's well worth testing. Uh, but I think there are some forms of provisional evidence that we can turn to that would give us some confidence in this hypothesis. What we know from science today is that mutualism is as powerful a force in environmental processes of selection than competition, if not more powerful. Scientists are just beginning to understand this sort of whole hidden world of mutualistic relationships that give species environmental advantages, you know, those species that are able to take advantage of them. Even within our own human body, we now understand that for every cell in the human body, there are about 10 other organisms living inside of us, almost all of which contribute to our health and well-being with occasional pathogenic exceptions. So some people are suggesting maybe we shouldn't think about the human body so much as the human ecosystem, which is this incredible, vibrant, complex, mutualistic system of many organisms and species that produces human health. In nature, competition exists in environments of scarce resources, where there's you know, only so much food in an ecosystem to go around and different animals are vying for the same food. Humanity, in many ways, has solved the problem of scarce resources. We are not limited anymore by scarce resources. We have technologically solved that problem and we're only getting better at solving that problem. Our problem is not with scarcity, it's with distribution. How do we move beyond cooperation as intention into cooperation as organic? So this I think requires probably a few things. One is first, 
we need to start figuring out how to raise children and youth, you know, raise young people in ways that really uh, draw out their sort of latent potential for cooperation and mutualism, altruism in much fuller ways. So part of this is really a question of education and socialization and, and these sorts of things. And we have a lot to learn in the, those domain. Although again, people are learning. You know, there is a shift in a lot of educational systems towards more and more cooperative learning, group learning, and these sorts of things. That's just one small expression of, I think, uh, again, a sort of awakening to this need in the world. We need to clearly develop, innovate, create, support new, new structures that support this. We need to figure out how to, how to do governance in more mature ways. And I think it's not difficult to look around the world and see how, uh, how sad the state of governance is becoming because these structures are not working. We can see also structures like this emerging in, you know, in, in domains like, um, like law. Even many lawyers and judges have been trying to steer people away from the court system and into alternative dispute resolution models. These are models that are literally trying to move beyond the culture of contest. Dr. Leila Tavernaro Hadarian is a global citizen. She grew up in Austria, lived in the U.S., and is now a research fellow at the University of Johannesburg. Her research focuses on mutualism and collaborative forms of communication in rural South Africa. She says that in post-apartheid South Africa, collaboration is vital. Collaboration is a very big word in South Africa. And it's not just a buzzword. It's something that really permeated the constitution of South Africa. Um, the idea of reconciliation, of collaboration, of mutualistic approaches to social organization, all of that has been present since the beginning of the new South Africa in 1994. And it's related to the idea of Ubuntu, which is a sub-Saharan African philosophy and refers to the concept of I am because we are. It's a deeply mutualistic philosophy that one can see in one's everyday interactions with people. It, it pops up all the time, people greeting each other, um, people feeling a sense of community and responsibility towards others, towards children who are not your own. Um, and it also affected um, and informed the way things like service delivery were conceptualized in the constitution, for example. And while, of course, you know, you look at South Africa and you see a lot of problems um, that still exist today and a lot of challenges that we have to overcome, um, I do believe that these, this idea of Ubuntu and this philosophy of Ubuntu is the reason why um, things have not been worse. <laughs> mm -hmm. And the reason why unity has so far prevailed over disunity. Talk about that, because one could very easily think that the country is in despair. Yes, absolutely. And in some ways that's true. I think that um, to a great extent, people here have adopted, perhaps unconsciously, some of the more Western liberal values that we're used to through colonialism which are divisive ways or adversarial ways of doing things as well. So this is also part of our reality. However, I do think that if it wasn't for um, the message of Nelson Mandela 
of bringing people together, of focusing on that which united people, we probably wouldn't even have this country as it is now. You know, there would be civil war, there would be all kinds of uprisings, and there would be more tension than we see today. I think what's happening right now, we're, we're, we're at a stage where, okay, 20 years into democracy, we're realizing that it's going to take more than um, beautiful thoughts and beautiful words to make a change. It's going to take us really committing to those words and putting those into, into actions and caring for our fellow man and asking ourselves through our personal lives, in our work, how do we contribute to building that South Africa, to building unity, to uplifting those around us in our sphere of influence? Now talk about this in the context of business. You do a lot of work with companies who want to move toward that collaborative space, is it right? That's right. And um, I invite people to um, look at changing the way that they communicate and incorporate participatory models of communication. Now, um, this is a this is something that comes very naturally to South Africans. Traditionally, um, South Africans um, of various different tribal backgrounds would have a very consultative approach to communication, where they would sit down, they would negotiate and, and discuss matters collectively in a group. They would do so. Um, with a facilitator who encouraged diversity, who brought out different opinions. And this really contrasts the prevalent approach that we see um, perhaps from the West, perhaps from the global North, where there's more of an adversarial, there's more of a hierarchy to the way that we um, communicate, to the way we organize. So practically, we'll, we'll sit down, we'll look at um, any task that we want to achieve as a business, and we will consult and we will deliberate on how we can achieve that task. And this uh, means that people who might be managers will be sitting together with people who are in so-called lower level tiers of, of the company, but everybody um, contributes um, equally to the discussion and everybody is valued and seen as being extremely important in this process. But what you're saying is that this is really in fact, a return to the indigenous value system of this place. In some ways it is. Um, we have to also be very careful with that notion because Ubuntu historically has sometimes been used to exclude people who are not of a certain tribe. But um, the idea of Ubuntu is really very alive in the South African society and it's something that's constantly being reinvented and made relevant and applicable to the times that we live in. So it's something that's familiar because it is ancient, it is there, it has been there. In some ways it is a return, but in some ways it's also an evolution. It's, it's forward looking. And it looks towards what we can build together as we, look, as we go forward. You know, there hasn't been any golden era of collaboration or, or something that we can really idealize and say we're going back to. But we could, um, we can, be very positive, positive about the future and look at the trajectory of societies and people and say, okay, it looks like we are moving towards ever greater collaborations. So even Ubuntu is in some ways a concept that is moving forward with the times and um, works with the here and the now. 
Now, some collaborations take place in small work groups, all meeting together in one location. But where Vahid Mazrur works as part of the education team for the Wikimedia Foundation, collaborating involves several hundred thousand people from throughout the world who never meet. Wikipedia helps millions of people every year to answer simple questions or as the starting place for complex academic research, all through collaboration. Wikipedia does not work in theory, it only works in practice. And if you think about it, it's a crazy idea, right? We are telling anyone, hey, you're welcome, come and, and, and modify the Wikipedia, prove it if you can. And uh, the result is we have a set of knowledge that is available for humankind to benefit from freely at no cost, and we keep on improving it. You know, people recognize that they owned Wikipedia, uh, maybe a third or a quarter of their uh, degree, a university degree, because of the knowledge they had been able to access there and how it was uh, simple enough for them to understand and usable enough for their uh, university studies to progress. The way Wikipedia works is that anyone is allowed to edit Wikipedia, right? So uh, Wikipedia is 100% the fruit of human collaboration around the world. Now, it's, um, it's not perfect because, unfortunately, uh, there's a strong bias in uh, northern white males writing the Wikipedia, taking the time to write the Wikipedia. So this means that the contents uh, don't necessarily uh, represent the diversity of human experience. Um, and also the contents are focused on what those northern white males know about. So you have uh, a lot of content about uh, Europe and North America and uh, less content about uh, the southern hemisphere, for instance. But it's, it all depends on people deciding to write uh, those articles and creating those contents on, on Wikipedia. The interesting story from a collaboration viewpoint is that uh, as Wikipedia started uh, building itself, uh, it had to set up uh, a series of norms to decide on what was good content, uh, what were what they could qualify as quality content, and contents that should be rejected, deleted, eliminated from the encyclopedia. Let's talk about how collaboration works. So um, collaboration in Wikipedia is a constant activity. So anyone can edit contents at any time. You just look at an article, there's a, a, an edit tab, and you can just write contents on Wikipedia. Uh, and then you publish the changes and immediately the article is updated with uh, the contents. So what this leads to is people uh, improving the contents of an article, but sometimes uh, people will decide, well, what you're doing is not an improvement. I will revert, delete what you have changed and go back to the previous version. <laughs> it's interesting that for the collaboration to work, a protection and safety mechanism had to be put in place. But of course, uh, that's what has made the, the Wikipedia possible. We're constantly offering the possibility of anyone coming and collaborating on the contents and sometimes they'll do it with bad intentions, right? How do you struggle with collaboration? What are the components of it that are really problematic or that you've the challenges that you've had to solve because the norms are, are not clear for new users you know you just click edit and you start doing stuff with the article um, it can be uh, it, it happens fairly often that uh, whatever changes you've made will be deleted or taken off and uh, somebody might uh, send you a message saying you know what uh, don't do this anymore. We don't want you here. 
And so the interaction is that people that have been in the culture for a period, a, a long period of time, have um, integrated, assimilated into the, the norms and culture and are expecting people that have never been exposed to that culture to respond to the norms. And that creates some difficulties. What other challenges to collaboration do you face right now? Um, so uh, if you look at the history of uh, Wikipedia, to me it's very interesting how some norms of uh, be acceptable behaviors have been created to facilitate collaboration. And uh, within that, uh, within those um, norms, it's also interesting that you have some people that have louder voices in the community than others. And this can be beneficial, but also can be um, difficult to manage in terms of consensus building. If you have some people that constantly speak louder than others and don't let all the voices express themselves. And at the same time, if uh, you think of um, people that are not really trained for uh, participation, and they, those people will um, be very quiet and let the louder speakers, uh, louder voices speak. And so this does not uh, create good consensus building necessarily. And this is um, something that we can see in, in the community. Sometimes you have some people that will speak very loudly their minds on, on different issues, on the strategy or on the, how the Wikipedia should be working. And um, having the, uh, a few norms is not enough to moderate and make sure that everyone has uh, a real presence and, and voice. In the so process. how do you offset that? So um, you can try to use surveys, for example, where uh, people have more of a, an individual voice and are not expected to confront other opinions necessarily. That, that can be one way. Or you can specifically make asks to as many people as possible to express their opinions so that it's not just a few voices saying aloud what they think. Since you don't have necessarily a norm for negotiating that, uh, consensus building can be quite difficult and has proven to be quite difficult in the uh, Wikimedia community at different stages. Vahid says Wikipedia will always be considered a work in progress. Thank you for joining us. We hope today's program has inspired you, our listeners, with ideas for discovering how we can all build a prosperous, just, and sustainable civilization. This has been Ethical Business Building the Future, Discovering How. Get more from this podcast by sharing your comments, an article, or a link to something that's important to you. You can contact us on our website, www.ebbf.org. I'm Jean Parker for EBBF, and I thank you for listening.